Welcome to the Lewis Jonker Podcast. Lewis is a speaker, storyteller, preacher and poet. Hope you get something out of this talk. My favourite place in the world is Wendy's Secret Garden. I'm a bit of a preaching junkie. I like to listen to a variety of preaching and I believe that we can learn from everyone, from the... From the antique to the contemporary, the reserved to the charismatic, the reformed to the orthodox, the uh, exegetical and the isodetical, those with classic training and those with life experience, the man and the woman, the old and the young. Even the Bible says that from the, uh, the lips of babes, God has ordained praise. And because I'm a sucker for preaching and church... I used to go to Hillsong, their Saturday night service, every second week. I'd travel to Sydney, go to Waterloo, and I would go to the Hillsong service every second week. And sometimes I'd fill my car with youth from the church I was at at the time, and I would take them along with me to go and sit under some of the Hillsong teaching and be part of church. And really, it was more a chance to connect with these youth kids who uh, were under my leadership at that point in time. You know, the car drive was almost more important than the church service itself. And after the Hillsong service, we'd get pizza, Domino's, you know, cheap $5 pizzas. I don't know how they make them for that price. It's amazing. Praise God. And we would go to Wendy's Secret Garden. And it is my favourite place on earth. I think we have a photo of Wendy's Secret Garden. This is Wendy's Secret Garden. I think there's another photo there of the view that you have of Sydney from Wendy's Secret Garden. Absolutely beautiful. Wendy's Secret Garden is hardly a secret. In fact, it pops up on Google Maps as Wendy's Secret Garden. (laughs) And it is all over the internet. Wendy Whiteley began curating this overgrown, unused piece of railway land out the front of her property after the death of her husband. And... Her husband was former artist Brett Whiteley. I don't know if you've ever seen him, but if you've been to Sydney and you, you, there's the giant matchsticks, one burnt matchstick one, that was her husband and they lived at the house just behind this garden here. And when he passed away in 1992, she, with, with her grief, she decided I need to do something. And so she went out the front of her house and it was a, there's railway tracks there and it was an overgrown piece of land and she started making this garden. She said she didn't know anything about horticulture, but over many years she found out what grew and what didn't. And now it's become a landmark. She didn't ask permission and no one told her to stop. And it's become a treasured landmark all these years later. And they have volunteers and they have gardeners that come professionally to tend to the garden. And it's so beautiful. And when, I, when I'm there, whether it be after a Hillsong service or sometimes it's just a place I like to go when I have a free spare moment to drive into Kirribilli or Lavender Bay. When I'm there, I'm, I'm reminded of the closeness of God. It makes me think of Eden and how God walked through it. But life isn't always colourful, chirpy birds and blue skies. Sometimes it is grey, painful and miserable. Sometimes we're confronted with our sin and its consequences. And we're not, when we're not feeling the beautiful garden, when we're in a place of despair, what do we do then? What do we do when we feel far from God or distance from him? And that's what I, we're going to sort of look at today from Luke 23, from verse 32, if you have your Bibles. It's a classic uh, <laughs> Good Friday scriptures, but today's not Good Friday, but we're going to do it anyway. Luke 23, from verse 32. 
Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, him being Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they, being the guards, cast lots to divide Jesus' garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, let him save himself. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, a sarcastic inscription, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hanged railed at him, mocked him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, we're on this cross justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, this Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Maybe you've gone to a Christian school or maybe you've come to services before or maybe you've just heard the story of Jesus on the cross through the Easter Sunday messages growing up. Or maybe you haven't heard the story of Jesus on the cross, this idea that on the cross he bore the sin of the world, bore our sin, took it upon himself, <laughs> an act of grace and forgiveness. And it was actually prophesied in Isaiah 53, 12, that he would hang there on the cross among criminals. It was prophesied long before that there would be thieves on his right and on his left. Jesus knew it was coming. He knew he would hang there. And one of the thieves, tradition tells us, and I mean, we can't always trust tradition very much, but nonetheless, it's good to think and learn from tradition that one of the thieves' names was Dismas. Dismas. In fact, the Catholics call him Saint Dismas. And this is the penitent thief, the thief who repented, who I'm going to talk a little bit about today. Now, I was doing some research, and what could have these thieves on Jesus' left and right possibly done? And I was apparently in Roman law, just being a common thief, stealing a loaf of bread, couldn't get you punished on a cross. So the assumption is that they did something much worse. I think some of the, some of the oral tradition states that they might have been thieves who waited in uh, alleyways for people to come by to murder them and rob them. And so some serious crimes. Or perhaps they had revolted against Rome itself and perhaps they were, you know, traitors, quote unquote, to Rome and therefore they were being hung on a cross. Either way, it seems one of the thieves definitely knew that he was meant to be there. Because he says, you know, we're getting this justly. Rome has convicted us, we're guilty, and so therefore we deserve to be on the cross. At this point, I want to point out that I am going to preach this sermon in a way that puts ourselves into the story, 
Also understanding that these, none of us are on, I don't believe any of us are on trial in an actual federal court or any of us are being put on death row or life in prison. I mean, uh, I've got a lot of sin in my life, but I think the worst thing I've really done legally was downloading, you know, a couple of seasons of Lost when I was in year you know, in year 10 or something at high school. Lost a great TV show, but I definitely got it by illegal means. Uh, this was back in the day before Netflix or stands. so I repent, God, forgive me. Please have mercy on me. <laughs> if anyone's watching through the, through the interwebs, you know, the police or whatever, you know, it's, I've got Netflix now, it's on there for free, so I'm just re-watching it in a, in a safe, legal way. But I assume none of us are, are secret murderers, and if you are, please come speak to one of the pastors after the service, because he'd like to direct you into the police station. Um, so we are different to this story. I'm going to present in a way that puts us into the story, but the truth is we are different to this actual story. Uh, in this room, at least, uh, none of us are on trial or in prison or hanging on a cross or on, on death row. But it is possible that some of us uh, feel like we are at our lowest point, in our darkest moment. Some of us feel incredible guilt and shame. There's no doubt about that. And in those ways, we can relate to the thieves on the cross. The other point in the story that is notable is that Jesus was perfectly innocent. The thieves were on the cross because they deserved to be. They were convicted by Rome and put on a cross. But Jesus was innocent. He was there by no fault of his own. He was there because they conspired against him. Even Pontius Pilate didn't really want to put him on the cross. I mean, the crowds begged for Jesus to go on the cross. He was perfectly innocent. And the one thief realised that. Some points about the repentant thief. First of all, he had to see past the mockery. At the start of, uh, from 32 onwards, we read so much stuff is happening to mock Jesus. They're casting lots for his clothing. They're putting a sign above his head. It says the soldiers mocked him, giving him sour wine in a sponge on a stick to drink. Some would say that that sponge was used to wipe yourself after the bathroom, handing it to Jesus' mouth. There was then the inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews, an incredibly sarcastic comment. Everyone's mocking him. The crowd is mocking Jesus. The guards are mocking Jesus. The other thief on the other side of Jesus is mocking him. And in a world full of mockery, the repentant thief decides, no, that's not right. And he says that he rebuked the other thief, saying, don't you fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. In this world, there is plenty mockery of the church and there is plenty mockery of Christ. And sometimes it's overt and sometimes it's covert, but there's overt. I mean, uh, on social media platforms, on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, if you scroll through reels on Instagram now, I'm starting to come up, I'm, they must know I'm a Christian because they're trying to definitely prove me wrong because the amount of atheists that I scroll past that have their opinion in their 15 second viewpoints is quite unbelievable from all different works of life. The, the, one, I've been, the one I've been, that keeps popping on my feet at the moment is actually Abraham Piper, John Piper's son. Terribly tragic, sad story, praying for John Piper's son. John Piper's probably known as the best Bible teacher of all time. 
And his son right now is one of the most prominent voices for atheism in the world. It's quite sad. It's tragic. Uh, yeah, it's, so, so pray, pray for the pastors out there who, who have children who, who aren't following Christ at the moment because it incredib- must be incredibly difficult. I can't personally relate, but it pops up. And Abraham Piper gives his examples and reasons why the Christianity he grew up with is wrong. And that's what our young people are seeing when they have TikTok and Instagram and all these things. Not to say that you should ban them from having it. Because if they didn't have TikTok, if they didn't have Instagram, whether they're in a Christian school or a state school, they're hearing their friends talk about why Christianity is wrong. They talk about it. I remember when creation ministries came to St. Philip's and I went to visit one time. You know, they talk about the, how God created the world and whatnot. And I remember walking past people at lunchtime and they were talking about and disproving the things that they just listened to in assembly to all their friends in groups. This, this is, there's mockery all around. I'm, I'm focusing right now on uh, children and youth because that's, I guess, where my, my space but I'm sure it happens in the lives of adults as well. I'm sure you have friends and peers and family members who aren't with Jesus or who aren't following him, who want to give you all the reasons why Jesus might not be accurate. And it's, it's, it's a mockery. Maybe not as intense as it was in that moment on the cross, but it still exists. And amongst all the mockery, one of the thieves turns and says, Ah. Oh. He goes against the crowd. He goes against the guards. He goes against the other thief. He goes against what the world is saying. And he, and he sees Jesus for who he is. And he decides not to join in in the mockery. In fact, he chooses to stand up and try and silence it happening. When young people do that, it's a miracle. When I see young people stand up for their faith, that is a, in this day and age, that's a miracle. And I encourage you, when you're out in public, stand up for your king. Stand up for your saviour. He saw past the mockery. Even Jesus' own disciples were starting to doubt or at least be afraid of being associated with him. We know that Peter denied him in a moment when even Jesus' own disciples are running away in fear. A thief on a cross is turning to him. It would have been difficult. It would have been humiliating for the thief who turned to Jesus, but he did it anyway. Point two is that the thief recognised his own faults. It says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. One thief comes to the revelation that he is deserving of his position on the cross. Now I do want to make it clear that when he says this in the scriptures, he's not talking about his, his sin or his lust or his habit of swearing or, or whatever vice that you may have. He is talking about the fact, I, I'm deserving, I was guilty, I murdered someone, I deserve to be put to death. That's essentially what he's saying. He's not necessarily talking about his sin life, he's talking about his literal, I'm guilty and I deserve to be imprisoned and, and executed. So that, that is an important point to remember. But for us, I believe that this story is great symbolism and has great deeper meaning for us in the fact that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Now, I've talked about that before, you know, growing up and going to kids' camps and all what, and that being said, it was, you know, my dad going, well, that's a bit heavy for a 12-year-old to be listening to at a church camp. But it stuck with me forever. The wages of sin is death. I've just always had a deep understanding that, yeah, I need to be saved by Jesus. 
I've just always had that in me, and I think that was part of my upbringing. And maybe you don't have that in you, but it is true. We need to be saved. I don't know what your particular vice is, but we all have things in us that cause other people pain. We all have things that cause us pain, and we all do things that doesn't bring glory to God in all of our lives, in every way that we live it. Sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. I don't know if you've ever felt like me, but when I've reflected on some of the times that I've hurt people the most or some of the times I've made my biggest mistakes, I didn't even know at the time I was doing it. In the, where I grew up, in the church I grew up, we'd call them you know, sins of omission, sins that we don't even know what we're doing. We'd ask repentance every week for the sins that we didn't even know we were doing. God, forgive us for the things I don't even know I'm doing. When I haven't loved my neighbour as myself and I haven't loved you with my whole heart, forgive me, God. So in me, because of my upbringing, I've always had this understanding that I need to repent and that the wages of sin is death. I've just always had it in me, but perhaps you don't. And perhaps it's hard to comprehend because you haven't murdered and you haven't you know, stolen anything too big and you haven't really, really hurt anyone to a deep level. But the truth is that God sees all sin, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and therefore all sin needs, we all need to repent of that sin. Some interesting points and I don't want to twist this scripture to make it a conservative trope. Uh, So I want to make something very clear. It seems that this thief didn't need anyone to tell him that he was guilty. He came to that revelation on his own. Some preachers, and sometimes it is good to remind people of their sin and call people to repentance, but in this particular story, and there's other stories, but in this particular story, the thief didn't need anyone to tell him. He knew it. He knew it. I would have to twist this scripture to say that someone was calling him to repentance. He figured it out on his own. He knew he was a thief. He knew he was meant to be there. And it caused him to turn to Jesus who was by his side. And I see that a lot with young people in this day and age because of social media. They're told they're bad. They're told they're evil. They're told, especially in a world where it's like, if you don't say everything right and you don't do everything right, you are the enemy, whether that be um, appropriately talking about uh, different, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's so hard. Young people are under so much pressure to make sure that every word they say is perfect. They know they're bad. They look at other people who are more beautiful than them on social media. They go, oh, what's wrong with me? Why am I broken? Why am I ugly? Why am I? And uh, they know they fight with their parents. <laughs> I know because the parents of the church call me. <laughs> they know. And, and some of them are so desperate to turn to Jesus. So I think in some scenarios, preachers are called to um, call out people's sin and draw them to repentance. But I think there's also scenarios where people need to realise it for themselves and they actually need to turn to grace and see grace and, and have that revelation for themselves. I think it's both. I think it's both and. In this story, he figured it out for himself. Another point is that sometimes we have to reach rock bottom before we led to that point of turning to Jesus. I've, in my, in, uh, in my hip-hop ministry, which I used to be a part of, I used to be a rapper, I know you wouldn't believe it now, but uh, when I was, you know, I moved to the Central Coast to be a rapper, uh, I slowly realised it wasn't going to work out for me. 
But uh, I used to go around with a hip-hop church and present places, and the people that they worked with were the, were the, the people that needed to be worked with. Jesus says he doesn't come for the healthy, he comes for the sick. And in that hip-hop ministry, I met so many people who were in prison and found Jesus and God in prison. And I tell you what, when you meet someone that found Jesus or God in prison, it's like they're whole, they just exude grace and they exude love, and it's unbelievable. I think these people are 10 times better than I am. They're 10 times better Christians than I am because they might have found God at their lowest point. And I don't know if anyone watching today or any in the room feels like they're at their lowest point, but your lowest point can actually be a catalyst for change. Not for everyone. There were two thieves. Only one of them turned to Jesus. But if you know people who are at their lowest point, pray for them, love them. But remember, sometimes God even uses the darkest moments to turn people to him. He works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The thief was at his lowest, his darkest, on death row. And that's the moment he realises that he needs to turn to Jesus and see Jesus for who he was. He turned to Jesus. The third point is that he recognised Jesus as Lord and the messianic king he realized who Jesus was. It says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That word remember is really important because in, in Hebrew, the word remember is used throughout the Psalms. And it's often used throughout the Psalms to call God, like as in to say to Jesus, to say to, to, say to the Godhead, remember your covenant with us. Remember how you saved Israel from Egypt. Remember how you promised to save us. It's a very powerful word. Remember me. Remember your promise to be with me. Remember your promise to forgive. And he does that throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament's a pretty hectic book. There's a lot, there's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of stuff going on. But throughout that, it's actually a story of Jesus, of the Godhead, constantly turning back to his people, constantly forgiving his people, constantly giving his people grace because he remember. And this thief, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He, he knew that Jesus was king. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. At a moment where they were mocking him, saying, this is the king of the Jews, he actually went, oh no, this is actually a deep truth. He is the king. And he turns to him on his deathbed. Now, some of you might think that seems a bit unfair. So I have to follow Jesus my whole life, grow up in kids' church, do all the right thing, feel a bunch of guilt and shame throughout high school because my parents instilled in me Christian values and I feel guilt and shame because I didn't live them every single day at high school. That's not fair. So I have to feel all that guilt and shame and live my whole life as a Christian. And this guy's just on the cross on death row in his lowest moment. He turns to Jesus and he immediately gets saved. That doesn't seem fair. Well, let me read you a parable in Matthew 20. I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to read it to you. Labourers in the vineyard, Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire labourers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the labourers for a denarius a day, which is a form of current, an amount of money, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So, so those first people, they've been working for three hours. But he goes out and he sees more people in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. 
and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again at about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. He saw more people looking for a job and he agreed, hey, head out in the field. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to him, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to him, well, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call all the labourers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius, an uh, an agreed upon amount of money. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more because the people who only worked an hour received an denarius. So, but each of them also received an denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last only worked one hour and you have made them equal to us who have been born the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take then what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. I'm not allowed to, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. In some sense, this thief on the cross was the worker who only worked an hour. All the people who had been working all day, they were running and hiding. They were denying Jesus. They were turning against him. But the worker, in the final moment, the last hour, turns to Jesus and gets his reward. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross, he had no Bible studies, he had no church services, he had no prayer life, he had no baptism, he had no works at all. He purely received grace. It's the same for us. Doesn't matter the amount of Bible studies we go to, the church services, the prayer life, the baptism. I mean, all these things are good. All these things, obviously, we should do them. I preach that at youth. I want to preach that at youth every Friday. They're obviously important. They're obviously good. But it's not by works. It's by faith and it's by grace and it's by the act of turning to Jesus and recognizing Him as the King and recognizing Him as the Messiah. That's what saves us. And His work on the cross and His blood that was shed covers us for our past sins, our present sins and sins all into the future when we trust and believe in Him. And that is the good news for you. That is the good news for you watching at home. It's good news for our children, for our youth, for our young adults, for our middle-aged, for our young families, for our elderly. I'm not looking up. I'm not going to look up or look anyone in the eyes. It's for all of us. Not by works, but by grace and by faith, by repenting. The word repent literally means turn. That's what he did. He he turned to Jesus. He was on a path of murdering, stealing, killing, destroying, and he turns to Jesus to receive life and life to the full in his final moment. Jesus takes his indefinite question, which was when you come into your kingdom, 
and he turns it into definite, into a definite article. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's, it's immediate. It's straight away. It's, I don't want to get into my, uh, <laughs> you know, revelation beliefs or whatnot and I'm not smart enough really to depict for you right now whether I think, you know, you close your eyes. And, well, I think the scripture says you close your eyes and you're with Jesus, but, but, you know, there's a lot of different thoughts on that. But what I do know is that today, in the moment, he began to be with Jesus in paradise. Paradise. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus responds with me today, you'll be with me in paradise. I loved last week when Craig was talking about how you view God. What's your tendency? Where do you swing on the pendulum? Do you see God as like, you know, sovereign and holy and, and uh, all, you know, all the big words, you know, and, and re, you know, like the king He's got a crown on, he's majestic. Or do you see him as intimate and close and, and both of them are good, but oftentimes in life we can swing from either side. And I love that the thief on the cross, he, he in that moment, he sees God as the king and majestic and, and powerful and he sees his kingship and he says, you know, remember when you come into your kingdom. But Jesus responds more intimately. The word paradise in the Greek comes from paradisos, Paradisos. And the word paradisos means, I think I've got another slide there, a park, a garden, a paradise. Derived from the word garden. The thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, your castle, your... your..." And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in the garden where I'll walk with you. And we'll hear the chirping birds and the colourful, see the colourful flowers. It's intimate. It's a call back to the Garden of Eden. We're going to be in the garden together. Yeah, I'm your king. Yeah, I'm your Messiah. But we're going to be in the garden. We're going to walk together. Because gardens are beautiful. God willing, none of us will pass away tonight. God willing. An old Lutheran pastor that just about after any sentence he said, he would say, God willing. You're coming over for dinner tonight. God willing. There's that deep understanding that anything could happen. It would only happen if God willed it. God willing, none of us are going to pass away tonight. If, If you're a believer in Jesus, you'll be with him in paradise. There's no doubt in my mind, but... What does it mean for us who have to wake up tomorrow? What does it mean to be with Jesus? I think, you know, once he turns to Jesus and Jesus says, tomorrow, today you'll be with me in paradise. And they both die and they, you know, they're in paradise. But what would happen if they were both taken off the cross, they didn't die? What happens then? Because we have a chance to repent and turn to Jesus and live our lives tomorrow and this week and the next week with him. It's my personal approach to the scripture and it's my personal thought that when we turn to Jesus, we can make a choice to be in paradise today and tomorrow and next week and the week to come. What does it mean to be with him? 
What does it mean to turn to him and be with him in the garden? For me, it looks like lying on a trampoline and looking up at the stars and remembering that Jesus is with me. And in that moment, it's like I'm in paradise. I'm in the garden. For me, it might look like taking a bunch of youth kids in my car to a Hillsong City service and heading to, wedding, uh, to Wendy's Secret Garden afterwards, looking out at the harbour and the beauty and going, wow, I'm in paradise with my king. It's not always easy to remember that we're in paradise when we turn to Jesus and we come to him. But I just want to encourage you this week to take moments to look out and remember whether it be at the storm or the blue skies, that when you come to Jesus, you get to be with him and you get to walk in the garden. Eternity doesn't start when you die. It starts the moment you accept Jesus into your life. We get the privilege of us as people who are here at Narara at the moment not, not to have to wait until our deathbed. You get the privilege of walking with him now. And I encourage you that when the world mocks, don't turn away like the disciples did. Be like the thief who actually turned to Jesus. And don't be like the unrepentant thief who just continues to mock at his own demise. Notice that Jesus turns, Jesus turned to the repentant thief and said, you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't turn to both of them and say, oh, and I'll see you there too. I don't want to read too much into that, but like, let's just take the word at face value of what it says. They both perhaps didn't get to be in paradise with Jesus. But it was today. I don't even think it was referring to when he dies. It was like today, right now, with the nails in your hands, with the pain, with the excruciating, uh, with, with all of that. Today, right now, you're with me in paradise. You've turned to me, you're with me. And you'll continue to be. I pray that this week, you will find opportunities to turn to Jesus, to recognise the things in your life that you need to take to him and perhaps repent of and, and recognise that's wrong. I pray that you'll find ways uh, to see Jesus' uh, messianic kingship and I'll pray that you'll find ways to be with him in the garden, to be with him in paradise, to be with him in the intimacy. Because on that cross, a pure act of scandalous grace he gave all our sins. He paid the price for us. And I'm so glad that I get to know him. I'm so glad that I get to walk in the garden where he is. And I would love to pray for you. But I also want to give you the opportunity to pray for yourselves. Priesthood of all believers, you don't need me to lay a hand on you and forgive you of your sins. You can come to God yourself. And so right now at the end of this message, I would love us to take just 30 seconds of silence or longer to close our eyes, to recognise the things in our life that we, the ways that we haven't loved God with our whole heart and we haven't loved our neighbour as ourselves, to have a chance to turn to Jesus, to recognise his kingship and to ask God that he would give us moments in the garden with him. So please... Let's pray. And would you be able to pray for your own personal situation?